Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. I asked the Prime Minister, how good is Australia? Please explain. Mate, this is just impossible. Too many people were confused. Uh, You bet you are. Uh, You bet I am. I have always believed in miracles. That's not a policy. Not now, not ever. I mean... These comments are completely inappropriate. I'm sure she's right. But I ain't spending any time on it. How pathetic. You're a classic space invader. Disgusting, mud-sucking creatures. You should be ashamed of yourselves. Oh, fair shake of the sauce bottle, mate. Taste of democracy, very good. Hello and thanks for joining us live at ANU's virtual Meet the Author event. Or indeed, you may now be listening uh, on delay to Democracy Sausage podcast. Welcome either way. I'm Mark Kinney from the Australian Studies Institute and the School of Politics and International Relations. We're going to be talking a lot tonight about democracy, elections, and how not to lose them unnecessarily. But before all that, let me acknowledge the traditional owners of the land on which we meet, the Ngunnawal people, and pay my respects to their elders past, present and emerging. And let me also thank Emeritus Fellow Colin Steele, who really is the steel behind these terrific events and has been for some years now. So let's talk democracy, unlosable elections and irrefutable polls with someone who's been thinking about and analysing national political events for decades. Also, who is the author of a riveting new book, How to Win an Election. Dr Chris Wallace is a former press gallery journalist and is Associate Professor at the 5050 by 2030 Foundation at the University of Canberra. And she's a visiting fellow in the School of History here at ANU. She's the author of several books, including biographies of Germaine Greer and John Hewson. Chris's ANU doctoral thesis uh, on political biography as political intervention is currently in preparation as a book titled The Silken Cord, Australia's 20th Century Prime Ministers and Their Biographers. She's twice been named the conversations, uh, one of the conversation's top thinkers, and I'm super chuffed, really, to be talking to her now, not least because she appears to have done something akin to cold fusion or maybe clean coal. That is, she's worked out how to win an election. Chris, welcome to Meet the Author, Democracy Sausage, whichever it is that people are listening to. Welcome to this event. Now, you're not about to put us professional commentators and pundits out of business, are you? I'm reminded of the hostility directed to the uh, the computer deep thought in Douglas Adams's Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy and all the philosophers were arguing, sitting around for years, arguing about the existence or non-existence of God. And, uh, and then deep thought comes along and spits out God's phone number. That was the joke <laughs> anyway. Is that what you're doing here? You've sort of cracked the code and you know how elections can be won? Something much more basic, Mark. I think that one of the things about politics is people become so intensely involved, uh, the politicians themselves, the staffers who help them, the party officials who are paid to help them win elections, 
uh, the rank and file members, journalists, everyone's very intensely engaged. And sometimes it takes someone to stand back and try and pick the pattern of what's going on. And when you stand back from the, the pattern of recent elections in Australia, it is very striking how rarely Labor wins federal elections. Labor has governed nationally in Australia for just six of the last 24 years. Uh, it keeps losing elections, and I thought it was time someone stepped back, tried to work out why, and passed on the insights. It's an extraordinary statistic, isn't it? Six of the last 24 years. We like to think that, well, we, we, we live un, under this illusion that politics is very dynamic and volatile, that uh, parties are changing, uh, the party of government is changing all the time. There's in fact only been seven changes of government since the Second World War, and mostly we've been in, in that time in coalition governments. So Labor does have quite a, a bit to learn. Nonetheless, La- Labor used to be really good at it. Uh, Labor won five elections in a row in the 80s and 90s, but then something happened. Some kind of link with basic political craft got broken, and since then Labor's been playing hit and hope a lot politically, and uh, really it's not good for the quality of government in Australia. So is that the answer really to why you wrote this book? I mean, I can, I can when I read it, I can see all this common sense in it uh, as someone who's been watching politics myself for a long time. And, and there is, there is much wisdom as well, deep, deeper thought than, than just the obvious, of course. Uh, but I can, so I can feel also the passion and perhaps a little bit of what you might call anger, if I could put it like that, or frustration might be a better way of putting it. Is that what led you to write this book? Well, you're a very insightful reader because I've tried to actually, um, not fall into the angry voice. I've tried to adopt the, the voice of the reasonable person because, of course, it's the number one thing in politics. If you want to persuade someone to your position, you've got to get them to listen to you first. So, in fact, I've gone out of my way to write a very calm book, uh, a short book with short chapters and short sentences and short words, really laying out calmly uh, what I think happened in 2019, which was an election, let us never forget, that was considered so definitely won by Labor that sports bet, the bookies, started paying out on Labor bets Days before the election actually happened. Did right? you ever get? To, I, I remember that event, and I, I never completely got to the bottom of it because it was sort of swept up in the biggest story of the upset of the election itself. But did you ever get to the bottom of how they justified that to their shareholders or whoever, whoever it is that actually ends up paying out on, on? Well, of course, the bookies were going on on Australia's number one poll, News Poll, hmm. and News Poll had had Labor in an election-winning position for every survey between the 2016 election and the 2019 election. So I think Sportsbet thought it was on a cert, but as you and I know, because, you know, we saw it in 2019, and of course we both as journalists saw it in 1993 when John Hewson, as Liberal opposition leader, lost the so-called unlosable 1993 election. Every election is there for the winning. And Scott Morrison took not a jot of notice of the news polls between the elections. He went out there to win that 2019 election campaign. Virtually no one in his party thought he could do it. He thought he could do it and he did it. And here we are where we are with a lot of really urgent policy issues on climate, inequality and so forth, not getting addressed again for another three years because Labor got outsmarted by a cunning and ruthless Liberal politician. Well, also you say cunning and ruthless, but also a, a liberal politician who, in a sense, was 
relatively free to, um, you know, if I could put it in cricket terms, to play his shots. I mean, he was like a tail ender that, or a, a middle order batsman with a couple of tail enders at the other end. Um, un- unlikely that he was going to win. He could just open the shoulders a bit and, and he did so. And his opponent, uh, Bill Shorten, was in this bizarre position because of the conditions you just described, this widespread expectation that victory was assured, uh, that, uh, that he was sort of defensive almost. He was in this bizarre position of being in opposition and, and yet sort of defending a lead. And, and that dynamic became quite obvious quite early in the election campaign. One person was connecting and the other person felt like he was defending a position. That is true. I mean, the Shorten opposition, well, Bill Shorten and his team anyway, definitely acted as though they had it in their pocket to the point where while the Prime Minister, Scott Morrison, was campaigning ferociously right through to the end of of the closing of the polls on polling day, Bill Shorten had basically taken the last couple of days off, uh, presumably to prepare for the handover to government. I mean, utterly mad. The thing is, Scott Morrison knew that Labor was complacent. He crafted a very effective political persona, the Daggy Dad, that bears very little relation to reality, and he went out on the trail and he did the critical thing successful leaders do, connected with voters, conveyed how much he liked them, and in return they radiated how much they liked him back, and that was beamed into every television news service in every home in Australia for five weeks. Meanwhile, you had a Labor leader who, very earnest, worthy, had some terrific policies that unfortunately, you know, weren't packaged into any key strategic message, who was woodenly going around the traps, shaking hands uh, in a suit coat that was slightly too big that made him look like a bit of a boy on a man's mission, unfortunately, uh, looking forward to the face next to him in the, the handshake line. Uh, look, he just got outperformed in basic politics um, of course, that's not the only thing that happened, but it's a very critical element in why Shorten Labor unnecessarily lost that election. Yeah, well, it, you're right. We will we'll get to some of those things, including uh, including Bill Shorten's role and I suppose, you know, the sort of culture and all of those circumstances. But let's d- just talk about the structure of this book for a moment too because I, I sort of have had an alternative title for it. It's a bit Douglas Adams as well, which was Life, the Universe and a Working Majority. Um, <laughs> uh, but... Um, so you've you've it, it's a sort of a biblical uh, kind of quest you're on here, and I like that. Therefore, you've set it out almost like the Ten Commandments. They're not really obviously orders, uh, but they are ten very solid principles that you say if um, if parties get these things right, particularly parties of the of the, the centre left, then they've got a very good chance of winning. And the ethos of that position or of that logic is that Australian elec- elections are close, and it's obviously a multiplicity of factors that go into uh, the way seats fall on election night, the way individual voters respond and the way individual seats fall. And, uh, you know, it, the result turns on how many of those you have in, on, in your column at the end of the process. And Australian elections generally, they're not, they're not very big, decisive affairs. It all happens right in the middle, doesn't it? That's true. Roughly one third of elections uh, in the post-war period in Australia have, have come down to a handful of seats and when you think that Scott Morrison's majority is only two seats, uh, it would have taken so little in even two or three areas of basic political craft for Shorten to have done just that little bit better to win. And 
it is so frustrating when that happens time and time again. Now, the trouble with politics is incoming leaders always think they're uniquely gifted. They're the ones who understand politics. They're the ones who are going to win. They know how to win. They know how to do it better than their predecessor. And of course, historical lessons aren't learned. So in, in the book I do, I, at the beginning of each chapter, I put myself in the mind of the failed leader as he goes through, in effect, the seven stages of post-loss grief. And of course, by the end of the book, he's, he's reflected, he's had the necessary insights and he's worked out what he did wrong and how easily he could have just got over the line and won instead of just falling short. But of course, by then, there's a new leader who's moved into the opposition leader's office. And he's not taking the old leader's calls. <laughs> yes, I and did so, notice that. It was rather a, so rather a believable point in the true. book. It's and, yeah. and Labor keeps setting itself up in this situation because it won't learn from history. Uh, and, of course, leaders very quickly come under siege. Opposition leader is a horrifically difficult job. Um, so opposition leaders typically surround, them, surround themselves with loyal staffers. Group think quickly gets established. Any external rec- critique, even from friendly sources, is generally rebuffed. And so the lessons are not learned. Is that because, I mean, I understand the the point about groupthink, but there's another way of looking at it that loyalty gets overvalued or at least it gets interpreted in almost a fundamentalist way. So someone being critical of the way things are done, the way ideas are communicated, the way arguments are, are put or fail to be put, you start being too critical and that's viewed as disloyalty because it's a conflict business and everyone's out to get you. You know, you've got your own party who some of whom think they'd do a better job. You've got the the government of the day uh, criticising you all the time. Uh, You're not taken as seriously by the media. So you're in a sense, you know, in a tight huddle. It's one of those situations where paranoia is absolutely justified. Uh, (laughs) But again, because of rule changes in the Labor Party, leaders are now insulated between elections from challenge. And Labor has slipped since Kevin Rudd introduced this idea uh, to protect his own position after returning to the leadership in 2013. It's it's kind of morphed into this "it's my turn" culture in the Labor Party. So Bill Short, so Bill Shorten loses in 2016, but he gets another turn, even though many people had reservations about his whether he would win, you know, inside the party. So he loses in 2016. Everyone knows Anthony Albanese's been waiting. It's Albo's turn. You know, is he the, really the best Labor can do? Well, no one actually asks that question. It's just Albo's turn. So let's let's throw forward to 2022, or as is more likely, uh, because of the economic situation, 2021. This time next year, yeah. So let's say Albo loses. So because Shorten got two turns, does under the new rules, does Albo get his two turns, irrespective of whether he's the one that's going to get Labor across the line. It's a very unhealthy situation in, in terms of producing the best leader to beat the other side. Now, of course, Scott Morrison, when he won the election, created the same rule in the Liberal Party to protect himself. But he got there in a system of brutal Darwinian competition for the Liberal leadership, where he came basically was the master plotter who came up the middle, uh, having done in Turnbull by encouraging Dutton to throw his hat in the ring. So the Liberal Party has this incredibly Darwinian competitor facing a Labor leader who's been created by this turn-taking culture. I mean, who's more likely to win? Yeah, although I don't know that I'd fully agree that um, Shorten's arrival there in the first place was that turn-taking culture. I mean, that was their first leadership ballot back in thinking back to 2013 that was done with the 
you know, the new rules where the rank and file had a vote. And it's well known that Albanese uh, outperformed Shorten as far as the rank and file preference uh, within the Labor Party, but Shorten had the numbers in the caucus. That's how he ended up being the leader. The tragedy of that, Mark, is that Anthony Albanese, had he come to the leadership when Shorten did, I think he probably would have won. He would have been Prime Minister. He was that much younger. He was still blonde and quite cute. Uh, He's just got that many more Ks on the road now, Um, a bit older, you know, not quite the looker he was back then, I think, to put it mildly. Um, when, when you actually look at why elections are won and lost, we, we probably focus too much on leaders. They're critical, but there's a whole range of areas that even with an ordinary-ish kind of leader, and, and let's stick with Shorten in 2019, he still could have won, had a number of things, really basic things, been done better. And that's really what the bulk of the book is about. Mm. I think one of the traps, especially journalists fall into, but pretty much everybody, is after elections happen, you, people come up with one or maybe two reasons mm. rather than going, actually, there were these 10 areas where if we'd even done a couple of better and a few things, it, the result could have been different. Yeah, I agree with you on that point about about Albanese. I think that at the time, uh, along with all those visual factors and the fact that he was younger, a few occasions on the road, as you say, um, he was also the standout minister, really, in terms of his parliamentary performance, in terms of his uh, strategic, uh, you know, wits on the floor of the parliament. He'd loyally served both Rudd and Gillard. He was shattered by the instability. Uh, he had the respect right across the party for the way he handled that. And and he seemed to be, you know, to my mind as an observer of politics, he seemed to be the best sort of punch-for-punch match-up against Abbott. This is Albanese I'm talking about. Yet the, yet the factions in their wisdom went to Shorten and then they've gone back to the older Albanese after Shorten's done those whole two terms and it does have that sort of sense of, hang on, this is a bit ass about, doesn't and it? And no-one's asking the question... Does Labor have the person who's most likely to beat Scott Morrison? Now, Anthony Albanese definitely has the rat cunning, but there's a question mark over whether there's just too many Ks on the road. And in an era where uh, media is more important than ever and social media is critical, uh, it's very interesting to compare even today how Scott Morrison's performing and how the Labor lead is performing. Um, you know, if you were taking this kind of level of performance to an election, you wouldn't be very confident of a Labor win. No, you wouldn't, but it's an extraordinary situation at the moment. It's not a great... I mean, it's, you know, as you were just saying before, it's never much fun being in opposition, but uh, these are not times for oppositions. These are times for, you know, to, to use the hackneyed term for Team Australia, for rallying around the flag. You know, Australians want the federal government to succeed in this corona crisis because its succeeding is is um, is the nation succeeding along with you know the state governments. So there's a a real kind of there's been a real dialing down of that you know the competitive politics as we normally see it. No one's been particularly interested in what the opposition's got to say, but they could still get it wrong. They could still play too much politics with it and and get into trouble. I use a lot of sporting analogies in the book. I've noticed that, yeah. And one of the things I argue is if if the Labor Party was managed even halfway as well as a top AFL team, they would have been governing for a lot more than six out of the last 24 years. There is never not a time in a political operation or a top AFL team not to be asking yourself, have I optimised my performance across all the key 
areas mm. that mm. I must succeed in excellently to win. Now, you know, St Kilda didn't sit around in the last 12 months and go, gee, we had a terrible season last year, let's cross our fingers for this time and make sure our social media posts are friendly. You know, their football department went out and systematically looked across their operation and tried to lift. You know, they're in pretty good position on the ladder this time. Mm. I don't sense within the Labor Party that there's this driving force seeking to lift performance in all the basic areas of political craft that it wasn't good enough at last time. And COVID is certainly not a reason to sit around continuing to hit and hope. There are too many big, urgent issues. And frankly, the likelihood of an early election, not a 2022 election, uh, and, and given the situation, there's not a moment to be lost. And we'll, we'll go to some of those, but just on that last point you make, for, for the sake of, of, of you know, because I think I know what you mean by saying that there'll be an early election, but let's just be explicit about it for, for people uh, watching and listening who, who, who may be wondering why that's so inevitable. A lot of it has to do with, with COVID and with the fact that the government's dialed in all this assistance to the economy. They're not going to be popular taking it out of the economy, job keeper, job seeker and all these things. Um, and so they're going to be looking for a, some sort of sustainable dismount, if I can put it like that, from the policy they're in. That drags the election forward. Is that you agree with that assessment? Well, that plus the, the, the economic situation in two years' time is likely to be even worse. way more dire than it is in a year's time or mm. now. Mm. Uh, you've only got to look at the massive GDP contractions around the world, not just here. That's it's going to compound into a do- downward multiplier into the system. So you know, should be all hands on de- deck preparing, really. Yeah. And you know, Mark, there are really, really urgent concerns that can't be not attended to in the meantime. Climate change. Now, I'm not actually seeing at the moment, uh, after the unhappy experience of Bill Shorten straddling the barbed wire fence on, for example... On Adani. On Adani. I'm not seeing the actual work that needs to be done in going and bringing the parties together the way Labor governments used to do. You know, you remember the awfully controversial steel plan, the textile closing and footwear plan, uh, the bringing together of disparate warring parties and the crafting of comprehensive policy solutions that don't totally satisfy either side but will work in a collective sense. If Labor doesn't do these things, no one else is going to. You know, the LNP would happily strip coal mine the entire continent. That's not going to change. The Greens would like to shut down every coal mine today and end coal exports. You know, that's an extreme position too. If, if Labor does not do the hard graft of going to Queensland, of going to Western Australia, of bringing everyone together and doing the agonising work of crafting selective policy, collective policy solutions on these things, no one else is going to. And it's not going to happen just by popping in and out now and then to the relevant areas. Well, there's been the odd skirmish on this front already. We've the seen, odd skirmish, exactly. Yeah, but it shows there's 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 some work going on there. At least there's some friction. There's some positions being taken. We know Joel Fitzgibbon has made his comments of you know a week or so ago where he said that um, he uh, he didn't think the Labor Party. He thought the Labor Party might not be able to maintain its its integrity as it currently is, and it may split into two parties. He then added. Perhaps not within his lifetime. So it may be, he may be sort of trying to soften the blow there, but he's talking about that difficulty that Labor has of straddling 
the differences, you know, the, the interests he, of mate, coal workers. He, is, he embodies one of those difficulties. The Joels of the world and the environmental wing of the Labor Party can be brought together and encouraged and talked through and led to and collectively craft a policy position that will work, that does do something massive in terms of a net leap forward on carbon emissions, that does reorient resource economies toward future jobs, not old jobs. But I'm just not sensing that that is happening. Now, I would be delighted to be wrong. Maybe the ALP is a hive of activity on these things at the minute. I'm not seeing it. But the, the Joel's of the world, Joel Fitzgibbons of the world, you know, terribly nice bloke, like him a lot. They're setting up a false binary that is unnecessary. These things can be the subject of comprehensive future-oriented policy work. It's been done by Labor in the past. It can be done and again, done in the future. But if they don't do it, the LNP isn't and the Greens aren't. This is Labor's own heavy responsibility well, to bear. This is one of the arguments, though, isn't it? That that the Greens are not prepared to move on the on the on the left of the spectrum. They pick off Labor voters in uh, Labor uh, MPs in um, in inner metropolitan seats. Uh, obviously, they've only done that once, really, uh, with uh, with federal Melbourne at the federal level. But um, that's you know that's the great the great fear that Labor has on on its left flank. The Greens aren't prepared to move. We saw they weren't prepared to move on the CPRS going way back to 2010, which was, you know, we're still paying for that in, in flexibility. Um, and, and of course, Labor is struggling with its, its, its old heartland, you know, uh, the, the, the place from which the Labor Party comes, you know, Queensland mining towns. But, again, to refer to the Hawke government, this has been done before. Was there any more old tech heartland issue than steelmaking in Wollongong and Newcastle? Yeah, but Yet, it wasn't subject to to to, to sort of a political pick off from from anywhere else. Well, I mean, we did see it in Ipswich in we, in, in Queensland. The, the, it was it was coming. It was coming. The thing is, you know, you can walk and chew gum at the same time. I'm just not seeing the work mm. going in to bring together disparate parties on key things like resources and the environment with a full blooded environmental agenda and a full blooded jobs policy for for resource sector yeah. areas. It can be done. It's been done in the past. I'm not seeing it happen. You know, it's got to happen if Labor's going to win. Labor in contemporary times cannot form government unless it carries Queensland. So this is not like a, you know, it'd be great to get this done. This is actually, if you want to win, it's one of the core things you've got to do, not just because it's the right thing and the urgently necessary thing, but it's the thing that's going to help you get into government. And Queensland was pretty much a disaster at the last election um, for Labor. I mean, there was there was all this talk about, you know, gains in Victoria that were going to uh, get Labor over the line. But, you know, it was I, I was speaking to someone uh, uh, close to, to the leadership um, in, the, in the dying week of the election campaign up in Parliament House, and he was telling me how the individual seat polling in Queensland was looking pretty... Um, Pretty iffy, wow. and, and and once he'd listed three or four of them, uh, it suddenly occurred to me: that if if you don't hold on to those seats, then you're yes, well, gone. Well, of course, what what poll were they looking at? So, one of the chapters in the book is mm. devoted entirely to polling. Yeah, and of course, many people got a shock after the election when they discovered that News Poll, it was YouGov who does News Poll on contract uh, for News Limited, it was News Poll. YouGov news poll that was doing Labor's own internal polling 
as well as doing news poll that everybody is following from the outside. And one of the great kind of extraordinary things about the 2019 election was that the tracking polling that DuGov was doing for the Labor Party internally was showing the oncoming disaster that happened, including in Queensland, while the publicly released news poll was showing that Labor would win. Mm. Now, Consistently, as you said before, right from the, 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 the Right up to election. including Election Day. Yeah. Now, in fact, and ANU's... Where, where it showed it was actually, you know, the, the gap was growing to exactly. Labor. Exactly. Yeah, which it wasn't. Yeah. So in the wake of the result, Brian Schmidt, the ANU Vice-Chancellor, very intelligently pointed out, look, the numbers don't lie, but polls are human constructs. Yeah. They involve weightings, they involve discretionary decisions at the margin, and pollsters operate like herd animals. So and no, they involve vulnerability in a exactly, sense. No one wants to be an outlier. Exactly yeah. right. So the the internal polling and anyone proving to it knew that there was a road crash coming. But of course, it's very human for the leader and the group thinkers around the leader to notice the numbers they want to see, mm. that they want to believe in, that they, they're used to trusting and going along with it rather than doing the hard numbers. So a basic piece of intelligent political craft is focus on the polling numbers that are least subject to human intervention, the primary figures. Mm. And Labor's primary vote has been way too low for way too long and extremely low in places where it lost badly like Queensland Mm. for it realistically to think it could win an election. What's happening about that? I'm not seeing the urgent attention to these critical core areas of, of political operation with an election likely, I think mm. we both think, next mm. year. Mm. I'm reminded of uh, that line out of Godfather where um, where, it, where one of Michael Corleone's, um, I think his consigliere says, Michael Corleone is, is the kind of man that insists on hearing bad news right away. And I thought, well, in politics it's the other way around. People avoid bad news often, uh, particularly in, in that situation. Uh, they were, as you say, reading... Well, not um, everybody because there were, there, was, there were some old hands who were privy to that in, internal polling who were desperately trying to get changes inside the campaign, including to the advertising, and they they weren't listened to. And it was probably would have been too late anyway, but, you know, a smart operator always does want the bad news first because then you can do something about it well, before precisely. it's too late. Let's let's look at the one of the, the core pieces of that bad news, I suppose, and really it's, it's bigger than sort of merely bad news, and that is Shorten. We were just talking about him before. Was Labor kind of caught in its own sort of partial success? I mean, it, it, it found itself in the 2016 election getting much closer than it expected. And so there was this was kind of actually a double loss for Labor. It lost the election, but it came close enough to decide it was worth sticking with someone who had lost the election in Bill Shorten. Was that a, did, did you notice that and did you feel it that was, that was a tra- It was a trap, but again... Because the, the, the numbers... Something seemed- happened, Mark. Something really big happened. Something changed. The leader changed. Mm. And pretty much the entire... As in the leader on the other side. That's right. Yeah. Scott Morrison succeeded Malcolm mm. Turnbull. And really, Labor never reoriented its operation. It really psychologically was continuing to, to fight Malcolm Turnbull rather than the new guy on the block who sized them up and just wiped their dial. And, you know, the thing about the Scott Morrisons of the world, like the Boris Johnsons in Britain and the Donald Trumps in the US, they understand in their bones that politics and the winning of elections is about emotion. 
Now, on the progressive side of politics, social democratic parties around the world, one of the core reasons for their underperformance is they're stuck on this idea that it's about facts. It's about reasoned argument. It's about, you know, great policies. What they don't understand is that's all really fantastic. But unless you can harness emotion to that, it's not going to sway voters to vote for you. Whereas the conservatives across the Anglosphere, they're hitting all the right dials emotionally, you know, to hell with the facts. And they're wiping the dial of social democratic parties everywhere, not just Australian Labor. Until social democratic parties work out that you've got to harness emotion to your facts and reasons and good policies, they're going to keep losing. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. One of the um, really interesting observations you made was about overlearning the idea or the lessons from the chaotic period of of um, of labour and government. So the the the, you know, the, the well known um, Rudd Gillard Rudd saga, and labour came out of that, you know, absolutely shredded. Uh, it lost government, uh, and there was this sense that unity had to be restored. You say, in a sense, they took that to such a degree that it, that it had other. Uh, deleterious effects. Can you talk to that? Well, I think it comes back to that lack of optimization on choice of leader uh, in that, you know, <laughs> Labor was traumatised by the, the whole Rudd-Gillard-Rudd thing and and the media loved the Rudd-Gillard-Rudd thing. It provided endless acres of amused newsprint and... Mm. and uh, I wrote some of it, yeah. Yeah, it, very traumatic period. The thing is... It, it took to its heart this idea that you just should not change leaders between elections. It backed that up with a caucus resolution, which I might add, it's not a constitutional change. It could be changed by talk caucus tomorrow if they did want to change leader. It would just take a, a vote in the room to do that. I know people always say that, but that would be tantamount to having the leadership vote. I mean, you only that, do that if yes, you want to. Yes, yes. So that's why it doesn't happen. But, but it could happen any time. And that's important for people to understand. Hmm. The idea that you need leadership stability and that it's central to winning elections was disproven by the Libs in the run-up to the 2019 election when practically, you know, the entire intervening period between 2016 and 2019 was one pile-on by the Liberals themselves on their own Prime Minister Mm. until he was, you know, thrown away like a used Kleenex and replaced by the very ruthless and cunning Scott Morrison. But this is not the first time we've seen this. The Liberal and National Party's second most successful Prime Minister ever, John Howard, in terms of the number of elections he won, um, he came to the Liberal leadership in a period of opposition where the Liberals had three leaders, John Hewson, Alexander Downer and John Howard, three opposition leaders within one term of opposition. So this idea that stability is critical to to winning, it's bunkum. 
it's highly desirable to have party unity. It's it's great to have the rule, current rule in terms of aligning front benches' behaviour in a constructive way behind the leader. But if the leader is not good enough to win, then it's going to take you down. You're going to lose the election. So you've got to balance that against the gains of unity. And if you're facing a likely election loss, really it's not worth keeping that rule, hmm. in my view. Let's go to that point you were making before about, uh, again, the sort of sports analogy and, and matchups. One of the key weaknesses that was seen in the 2019 election was the just the vast suite of policies that Labor took to the election, which made it very hard for any simple messaging. And also the one of the people who was key behind that, that being the shadow treasurer, Chris Bowen, uh, and at one stage he, he famously commented, if you don't like the franking credit policy, don't vote for it, uh, which didn't go down all that well, particularly with some of his colleagues. Um, the attitude that it, that, it, that it spoke to, I suppose, was what people were most worried about. But overall, there was this big suite of policy. Um, to me, it, it, um, the result, and I'm not saying I picked the result because I didn't, um, but uh, the, the, uh, the result to me uh, sort of reinforced a, a lesson which is, and, and you've come to this in your book uh, much more eloquently, but um, that it's a big thing to change government you know, hence my point before mm. about it doesn't happen that often, only seven times since World War II. It's an even bigger thing to ask voters to change the government and change the country at the same time, you know, in a whole bunch of sort of potentially complicated ways. And that was what Labor was trying to do, really. And Chris Bowen was a chief uh, articulator of that. He was, the, he was the one, he was the principal explainer of all of these policies. How much was that a problem and how could it have been done better? Coming back to the AFL analogy, no one expects an AFL team captain to win the grand final on their own. So we've got to remember about party leaders, no single person can do it all. They've got to be backed up by really key front benches in key portfolio areas who can bring voters with them. It is crucial. Now, I think part of the complacency with which Labor approached the 2019 election led them to make policy overreaches that would have been difficult from government, with the resources of government, mm. but really nigh on impossible from opposition. Uh, the franking credits policy is a classic. Let, let's just think about that for a moment. Now, if I need to stop and explain a, a policy to you because it is that complicated... It's a loser of a policy. It's, it's too much. It's too hard. If I take a policy to an election which is not costed, for example, Labor's proposed policy in the climate area, mm -hmm. they never put a number on it, that provides a maximum canvas for your opponents to create a massive scare campaign. And the two things reinforce each other in a sense, a suspicion that there is starts detail. reinforcing yeah. each other, and when you add some very, very dodgy political manoeuvres at a grassroots level by <clears throat> by the LNP in relation to the franking credits policy, uh, which was really pretty dirty politics. This it, is referring to it as a death tax. So. That's right. It had a tremendous, <clears throat> extremely negative effect. Now, of course, uh, Labor subsequently, in its review of these things, post-election, post-loss said, look, the people who would have been most hurt by things like the uh, 
<clears throat> excuse me, the franking credits policy, they supported it. They still voted Labor. Poor people who weren't going to be affected by it often said they voted against Labor because of it. Hmm. And this is, of course, due to the scare campaign. Do not give your opponents an opportunity to mount scare campaigns. It's really basic. Uh, but Labor, of course, got foxed into the to responding to the small target, small mm. policy target sledge, which is very predictable from the other side. So it's gone from small target to, to too big a target almost, made itself too much of, that's, of the issue. That's right. And, yeah. and it's a false dichotomy. You don't want to be a big target or a small target. You want to be a smart target. You don't want to, you want be, to like, be a moving target. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> you don't want to be like, you know, the cr- cricketer at the, at the crease and the bowlers coming down and throwing balls at various lines and lengths and keep sledging you saying, ah, oh, you're a small target, small target, you know, through some macho deficit making you then swing the back widely with some, you know, big mm. policy gambit like a franking credits mm. policy mm. and get suckered into to getting out. Just don't do it. Yeah. Do it, do it from government. This is not an argument, by the way, not to have big ambitious policies, but it's an argument to if you've got a complicated policy like franking credits, get into government first and then do it from government where you've got time to, to identify the problem and communicate it, structure expectations, conduct the community conversations necessary to back the big policy changes. Again, we saw the, the Hawke government and the Keating government do it again and again. Labor's done it before. You can do it again, but it's got to wise up and work out what's achievable from opposition and what you've got to wait and hold until government to do. And there are some things that you will be forced to be speaking about before an election, and there are other things, and Frank Gredis was probably one of them, where you didn't even really need to be talking about it. Uh, they were going to be asked about their tax plans, of course, capital gains tax, negative gearing, these things. When you put it all together, there was a fair bit there. Um, but when you think about it, like John Howard obviously got himself into that situation where he was saying there wouldn't be a GST, and then and then he decided there would be a GST, but he did it. In government, and as you say, with the extra resources and the extra prestige that attaches to governments, he was able to survive, albeit very narrowly in 1998, but he was able to survive. Correct. And there was a legitimacy to that policy. Um, so, yeah, Franken Credits is a, would have been a perfect example of one of those things where they could have looked at this policy, presented the problem, and then presented the solution. In government. It's actually a really good order to do things as well. In as well. Yeah. That's true. In government, yeah. And, of course, in this case, you had the additional problem of Chris Bowen having a a, a Paul Keating level of auteur in his <laughs> pronouncement. If people don't like the policies, they don't have to vote for them. Yeah. Now, again, people forget that Paul Keating in opposition in the early 80s was not the Paul Keating treasurer persona. It developed mm. in government. Mm. And people do not like that level of arrogance anyway, let alone from someone whose opposition, you know, they're not even on the government benches. Um, I think Chris Bowen is actually a fascinating biographical study in terms of his recent evolution. He's doing a lot better as as health shadow minister. Um, But, you know, the learning kept going for him. Of course, in the immediate post-loss period, he threw his hat into the, the ring for the leadership, got the shock of his life when his colleagues went, you know, you must be joking, mm. and then had a press conference 24 hours after announcing this, saying he was withdrawing his candidacy, identifying correctly the complexity of the language Labor was using to try and communicate with voters as a problem, but said this was something that had to be recalibrated. Mm. Yeah, I know. Indicating I know. <laughs> he had not learnt the own, his own lesson. You know, you just wonder sometimes. Anyway, he's doing a lot better now in health.
He is doing a lot better now. Um, We've got a, a number of questions that have come in from from people watching, uh, which I have in front of me, and we'll cycle through some of those. And I know we're getting uh, quite long on time because this is just such a fascinating area, and there is so much to talk about. But and so many sporting analogies. Mark. There are so many, and we'll probably torture a few more before we go. Um, the uh, let's just think about those matchups, though. Uh, Jim Chalmers now, uh, you feel you feel more confident about his ability to do that. I mean, he's certainly very competent. He certainly knows what he's talking about. It's about connection as well, though, of course. Well, he's not, he's not making the threshold errors of being arrogant. Uh, he's interested. I notice he's listening carefully. He's extremely technically solid. Mm. Um, most people probably wouldn't know he was, you know, on the treasurer's staff during the GFC. So he's actually, as a staffer, managed an economic crisis. Mm. Chief of staff, in fact. Indeed. Yeah. Um, and, you know, a really regular good Queenslander. I mean, he's, he's someone and to watch. And an ANU alumnus, by the way. That yeah. is true. That is true. And a tremendously nice bloke. I think he's doing very solidly. Um, I think Josh Frydenberg's in a kind of his major kind of flowering moment as a treasurer. Well, this is he's the interesting matchup, isn't it? This is the interesting matchup of, yeah. of politics at the moment between these two. They're both regarded as future leaders of their respective parties. Uh, both around the same age, you know, younger than 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 uh, than um, many others, uh, but uh, with a lot of experience now. Uh, although the government's trying to tag Chalmers as being inexperienced, this is their their attack on him all the time in Parliament. The thing is, he, in an animal sense, he plays really well. He's good on the box. He's a you know easy on the eye. He looks like a you know a regular kind of guy. Um, he's got a lot going for him. I, th- I think he's a he's a work in progress still, but really really promising. All right. Well, let's um, let's go to. But you uh, see, you've stopped there, and this is one of the the other things I raise in the book. It, it's not just football itself and running a team. The football media. If you if you watch follow AFL mm-hmm. week to week, there are intensive analyses, matchups. You know, on analysis. The couch, of, all that, yeah. How? When was the last time you, as a journalist, sat down and and looked at the you know top half dozen portfolios and well, considered portfolio? By portfolio, what the matchups were doing, how how the competitors were going, how the policy development was. We could going. talk all night on that though, because we all we both. Know. We might at a dinner party, but you never see it on the media. No, but I mean, we could talk all, all, all night about that question you yeah. asked, really, yeah. because there, we know there are reasons why that is the case. I mean, we know, for example, there are a number of people who are there by a, a kind of a um, a quota system. I mean, they, they won't have quotas in the Liberal Party about about females, but they quite got quotas for everything else. You know, state, faction, house, uh, all those sorts of things uh, tend to, uh, d- you know, decide whether you're that, on the that's front why, bench. That's why people so you're are not por- there for quality. But that that's why people are in particular portfolios. So I'm talking about media. I think, you know, Australia hasn't been well served by having such a concentration of media ownership by the Murdoch family, which has, you know, basically promoted the not very attractive, pretty unethical and, ex- and increasingly extremist development of conservative parties in the Anglosphere. But, you know, we're actually at this golden moment in terms of media possibilities, uh, in terms of digital opportunities, social media. I think, in fact, journalists ought to get a way, whole lot more innovative about how they cover politics and try and lift the average standard of reporting and therefore political operations. Why do you think journalists don't do that, though? I mean, as a practising journalist, think about what that would have been like to be essentially picking off non-performers in the, or, or, or critiquing them. I mean, I, I, you know, I used to write the odd um, 
sort of top 10 or, uh, you know, I picked the All-Australian side out of the... I picked the All-Australian Cabinet once out of the entire 226 members of, of, of Parliament as a sort of a, you know, column idea, and it was quite a lot of fun, but, gee, I got some friction for it. And that's because you were having an impact. You see, the minute very transparent evaluations of performance happens, not just in terms of the practice of politics, but the practice of policy, there are consequences. Mm. You're making something visible, therefore there's a consequence, there's a transaction cost. People who are judged to be doing well get rewarded, people who are judged to be doing badly are punished. I mean, there, there needs to be a whole lot of innovation but doesn't in the media election to deal result with this. in 2019, this, mm. this, this, this goes to your thesis, right? Doesn't the result in 2019 really prove that politics is still quite presidential? Scott Morrison was said to have, you know, pretty much won it off his own bat. And, uh, and I think we can agree that, you know, he was, he was perhaps the only person who truly believed that he could win. And uh, that preternatural conviction was, was enough uh, to carry him. I mean, it was, it was the Morrison show. I think leaders are critical, but I think the book shows very clearly that there's way more to politics than the leader. For example, the low level, uh, scaremongering that was being fanned by, uh, public hearings on super matters mm, mm. by certain Victorian backbenchers mm-hmm. for months in the lead up to the election, uh, creating this kind of yeah. fog around the, this so-called death, death tax. tax. Yeah, Tim Wilson and you know that kind of sustained low-level grassroots operation made Morrison's gambit during the election effective. But absent of those kind of things, would he have been? I don't know. He's only got a two-seat majority. You know, if if Bill Shorten had been focusing, for example, on the primary vote in his polling rather than on the much more cheerful two-party preferred, would he have been less complacent? Would he have been focusing on trying to save Queensland instead of maybe winning winning Kuyong? You know, Mm. a ridiculous dream. All right, well, let's go to some questions quickly. We've got one from Lauren. Um, She says, the stupid man, in quotes, the stupid man is an electoral winner, but I'm guessing a stupid woman candidate would play less well and reinforce negative stereotypes. What's an effective character for a female candidate to cultivate. Interesting. So I think this is a reference to the bit in the book where Jack Halberstam talks about George Bush as a kind of a signal moment in, in Western politics where that kind of goofy guy mm, mm. persona became the cover for some really nefarious right-wing moves. And, and of course, Scott Morrison falls into that tradition. Uh, I think Lauren's right. These things are extremely gendered. A woman couldn't get away with that persona. No. Uh, but at the same time, women all around the world are establishing incredibly effective and demonstrating effective political personae. I mean, Jacinda Ardern across the ditch. Wow. Mm. Mm. What an effective politician. Angela Merkel, been on the scene for the Conservatives in Germany forever. Tremendously effective and successful politician. A woman. So, um, I think Ardern and Merkel show that, uh, In fact, you can just be yourself and be tremendously successful. Authenticity actually works. Uh, There you go. Yes. This one's from Gulendam. Um, For young people who haven't yet joined a party, what advice would you have around entering politics and winning? So I'm I'm one of those people who constantly urges people to get involved in politics, whatever their politics are. Uh, The less political parties become stagnant, tiny pools of mad people, the better. Hmm. So Mark... Go forth and join a political party. Um, <laughs> I, th- I think the thing is to A, get active, B, stay active, and C, don't get sucked into internecine, juvenile, uh, unethical, political behaviour internally, which inevitably spills in, over into the same thing, competing against 
parties externally. Um, you know, we're only, you only get a decent country and keep it if everyone is prepared to do the right thing. And I think it's a big worry to a lot of people that politics in the West is sliding into a really, really bad area. Um, you know, we're all closely following the US election. Biden may win. Biden may probably win. Let's say Biden wins. There's a lot of reporting in the US about whether Trump will leave the Oval Office or attempt a constitutional coup. Now, where US politics go, Australian politics is typically followed. And it's deeply worrying that some of the social media techniques you're seeing used over there are creeping in here. Uh, similar loose attitude to facts, similar weak performance by journalists in holding politicians to account on the truth. Um, yes, we saw that in response to Jonathan Swan's interview. There was this kind of revelation that you could actually sort of confront the president on some of these things. Um, it was quite an interesting reaction, I thought, from a lot of US journalists. You know, some of them resented it. Many of them said about time someone asked the president these things. And I think many of us in Australia thought well, that's, that's kind of one would have thought a fairly standard uh, approach. Uh, you know, well executed. I'm certainly not taking anything away from him. But uh, yes, it's very odd. Well, I worry that there's not uh, sufficient collegiate backup in situations where a politician is clearly lying. Yes. Uh, instead, internal competition takes over and politicians and journalists just want to ask their question and forget the previous journalist's mm. question. So I think there's, there's a, an, it's another area where media practice can really evolve because we do not want to end up in the situation that has prevailed in the US since 2016, where you can have a leader systematically lying day in, day out without consequence. Do you think there's any possibility then, it's a dark possibility I know, but that the post-election analysis will again be talking about a kind of a, a visible campaign and a subterranean campaign, as was the case in, say, the Brexit campaign of 2015, was it? Um, and, uh, and, and in a number of elections since then, including the most recent one, where we find that, as you say, this social media campaign, what's happening on the ground or underground, uh, is quite different from what's what you know what seems to be happening happening in terms of the old orthodox campaign. Uh, I think you've you know you've drawn attention to it. Absolutely critical, and and you know as each day goes by, more and more critical issue, and that is the fact that on the conservative side of politics, they've totally worked out how to game social media, and again on the social democratic side of politics, people are still flailing around thinking, "Wow, I had a good Instagram post." That's effective digital operations. Uh, the Labor Review was incredibly critical of Labor's operations in that sense and at the last election, correctly so. Again, I don't see anything happening that's going to make it a lot different next time. Meanwhile, conservatives have pretty much, you know, conquered winning operations in the digital sphere. Uh, Facebook, pretty, you know, it's phenomenal how many people just live on Facebook and get their news from Facebook now. Uh, if you're not really active there, really politically, it's just so difficult. Political parties that don't get with it are just going to get run over. And the conservatives are doing it so much more effectively. I don't like a lot of their techniques. You, you can meet it and match it and still be ethical, but I don't see the Labor Party 
doing it. Now, this is a question that you've sort of dealt with a bit already, but I'll, I'll ask it anyway, just because I know you, you always want to have a lash on this. How can, this is from Denise, how can progressive political parties overcome Australia's highly concentrated Murdoch, Costello, Stokes dominated commercial media landscape? I think there's actually a number of signs of hope on the media landscape. I draw attention to things like the conversation that a consortium of Australian universities put together, which produces very high quality, factual, but easily understood uh, research outputs. You know, it's, the conversation is doing a phenomenal job. Uh, it's an Australian invention. It's actually spread around the world. It's such an effective model. model. That's one really hopeful development. Uh, people like Maury Schwartz in Melbourne, whose who's stable includes the Saturday paper, the monthly and so forth. Again, great independent journalism. Um, lo- it's locally, great journalism, but does it reach swinging voters? Does it reach, I mean... Is, it's is a it, start. Hmm. It's a start. But honestly, there is so much scope in, in the dig- digital space for new initiatives. Uh, not a lot's being done by people who are coming out of a conventional political background, um, but they could. And, you know, with social media, as Donald Trump famously said in 2012, it's like Twitter's like owning a newspaper without the overheads. I mean, <laughs> yeah, And the losses, yeah. I, I really worry that professional politicians us on the Labor side are so slow in understanding that this is a fundamental deep shift in the media landscape and that they've got to put the work into understanding it. You know, they are getting killed on social. We've got a question from Matthew. If a federal election were held today, held today, who do you think would win and why? And can I just append to that um, a, a kind of a tangential question, which is um, do you think it's possible that, at least theoretically possible, that Bill Shorten could read your book? And a lot of it is kind of addressed to him, or at least that's the kind of device you use for explaining mm. a number of these principles, you know, with the introductions to each of the of the 10 points or the 10 chapters. Is it theoretically possible that Bill Shorten could read that, take on board those lessons, perhaps give a big speech or perhaps write a paper, taking account of all of those things, in many cases accepting that he's learned lessons and make a comeback? So there's two questions there, really. You know, who, who do you think could win? And, and is, is, is Bill Shorten a spent force or could he come back? Wow. That's uh, that's a tough one, Mark. <laughs> um, I noticed Bill is back in mm. that he's uh, he's smartened up his presentation. He's very active on on in the media generally. The answer is I don't know. I think it's unlikely. Uh, if it did happen, I think it wouldn't happen for a very long time. The reason you could never rule it out is the example of John Howard, who mm. of course lost the Liberal leadership in 1989, uh, was considered a spent force by everyone except Jeanette Howard. And then, you know, in a, in a kind of Stephen Bradbury level performance, uh, became leader again of the Liberal Party in 1995 and then turned himself then into a tiny yeah. dot <laughs> on policy. You know, you recall going to, to press conferences and the policy he'd be releasing as opposition leader would be a, almost a blank page piece of paper and of course became prime minister. So you can never say never about Shorten, but I'd be surprised. In the, in the short term, in the near term, if that happened. And, you know, doesn't Labor have sufficient future generation options not to, ha- not to have to look back? I think there are some, there are some good options hmm. amongst people who haven't been, been leader yet. Um, but, of course, you know, Anthony Albanese is the leader now. Let's see a blistering performance. Let's see what he can do. Jeff Kennett and Colin Barnett, also two people who left and came back and actually won, so... That is left the leadership of their, of their parties. 
um, respectively. Have you got a long odds bet with sports bet on Shorten? I'm sensing you've got a bit of a no, basis. no, no. I just no. I just thought it, as I was reading the book, I thought it's really it's a really interesting sort of intellectual question. Really, uh, if there is value in understanding these principles in in analysing your performance, then theoretically one could apply them to oneself. Mm. A leader could. That's true, so. but what I'd really like much more is for Labor to kind of take into its bones the idea that basic political craft exists, that it's got to be excellent every time and inculcate the culture that everybody does it, not just the leader, every frontbencher, every staffer, everyone, because six years out of the last 24 years is a pretty poor show. Yes, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a low return and there's a lot of people who were, who were hoping for so much more. And, uh, yes, as you say, the, with the, the circumstances being what they are at the moment, um, the election presumably next year is no lock, uh, for Labour. And we know that, um, as you've pointed out, um, Labour came close in 98 and stuck with Beasley and didn't win the next time around. Uh, and of course, Howard was in for a long time. So, uh, whether Scott Morrison can pull off this idea, as he seems to have somewhat successfully sold the idea that he's he's a first-term government, even though it's a third-term coalition government. I mean, maybe he's he's got the energy for another for another win. Hard to know. <laughs> you know, it's a thought that perhaps you yeah, you're not so pleased about. Look, thank you very much. There's uh, that that's most of the questions we've got there. Thank you very much, Chris Wallace, for um, you know coming in and talking to us. Uh, on this um, Meet the Author. It's been terrific doing so. It's a fabulous book. I would uh, recommend that uh, people go out and buy it and read it because it really does, uh, as as you said, take you through a whole number of things in a very logical way, applying them to things quite fresh in our memory and, uh, and uh, uh, you know, giving us a, a framework for thinking about how they might be done differently. So it would be interesting to see how well it sells and also how well it, uh, how, how widely it's read within the Labor Party um, and indeed, as you say, in theoretically in any political party, but it does seem to speak most most uh, specifically well, to I do those mention parties a, of the centre-left. I do mention a couple of times that moderates in the LNP are well, you know, very welcome to take the same lessons because I think they've got a big job too to try and drag their parties back from the extremist tendencies that have really taken hold there. Indeed. Thank you very much for being with us on this special uh, Meet the Author with Chris Wallace or indeed on Democracy Sausage if that's uh, how you're listening to this now. Um, and uh, keep an eye out for uh, the Meet the Author next week where we have Catherine Murphy uh, talking about her new quarterly essay, uh, The End of Certainty. She'll be talking about that with me as well, so I look forward to that conversation. Uh, and until then, it's, uh, it's bye from me and from Chris Wallace. Thanks, Chris. Cheers. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. 
Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. 